This episode of Manage Smarter is brought to you by SalesFuel Sales Manager Training. Based on the Sales Manager's Guide to Greatness, it's a 36-lesson on-demand program to upskill your sales manager so they can execute your vision and drive consistent revenue growth. Watch a free lesson and find out more at salesfuel.com SMT. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Come in, come in, everyone. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast on the Sales Experts Channel and all major podcast outlets. I'm Audrey Strong, Vice President of Communications here at SalesFuel. And I'm Celie Smith, the President and CEO of SalesFuel. Well, if you have ever wanted an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, we've been looking for a master to talk about this subject. Actually, we've been looking for somebody for quite a while, Lee, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. It's a topic that's on a lot of people's minds, uh, and believe it or not, especially during the pandemic. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. That's right. Katie Zink is our guest. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Audrey. Hi, C. Lee. Great to be yeah, here. Just call, you can just call me Lee, Katie. That's there Okay. You go. Yay. Good to know. It's great that you're here. Um, I want to tell everybody a little bit about you. You're the founder and principal consultant for Social Construct Consulting, and you help visionary leaders create positive, dynamic culture that hears, recognizes, and supports all voices. Been around for about 11 years doing this. Katie has advocated for causes in her communities affecting at-risk youth, career readiness efforts, after-school programs, and accessibility services. So you're not just you're walking the walk, girl, right? Not just mm-hmm. talking the talk. People hire her to guide an organizational diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. We're going to learn how to do that today. If you have no idea where to start, she's going to explain that. And to design employee-led coalitions to actualize the goals in the workplace and to create a new culture. Loves contributing to professional learning summits, industry conferences, blogs, youth career day. So uh, you got to you know call her up and get her on the line. If you, It's Katie Zink. .co is the website if you want to engage her for speaking or any of those services. Okay, so where to begin? So, okay, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about uh, our, our, our current state of affairs. Uh, we're still in a pandemic at the time of this recording. And I'm just kind of curious uh, from what you're seeing, like what uh, diverse groups are having the most difficult time right now during the pandemic, balancing the work and the, the home life? Yeah. It looks differently everywhere, and it kind of depends on who you ask and asking me right now. My clients really want to know how they can help their teams metabolize the state of things out there. Um, Kind of as like we were just talking about before we went live today about, gosh, like people are struggling everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there's just really no getting around these external stressors, as I call them. You know, things like January 6th are happening. I feel like mm. probably a lot of us feel a little bit differently about how we celebrated MLK Day this year. And it's affecting the way we show up at work. And so, so when the, a lot of the questions that came to me last year from my clients were, how do we have these conversations at work? Maybe if they're a little more political than we're used to, maybe if they're a little more charged than we're used to, we don't want to create any division. Ultimately, we'd like to create unity but how do we really do that in a, in a real way, in an authentic way? And ultimately, like you said, show up and speak. If you're on the employee end of this, how do you do that where you feel like you're in a safe place mm-hmm. and your point of view is taken in and internalized and, and shared and respected among all? 
Mm-hmm. It's scary. If you're the individual, it's scary for the managers and it's scary for the employees, right? Yes. Yes. You know, a lot of these things are really delicate and very personal. And for years and years, we were raised to not really bring those emotions around our professional spaces mm-hmm. or get emotional at work. I'm not saying that's maybe where we're going to immediately go. We know that this future of work, this current modern time work, it's a lot more real, right? We are bringing mm-hmm. our whole selves in kind of whether we like it or not. Um, but Ultimately, the goal is so that everyone can feel more comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. And so I found that companies are starting to become more comfortable with gathering folks maybe off off the clock or even during the clock to discuss these things and amplify that voice in a more organic way. And so what I do is I come in and I help facilitate all of those conversations and turn it into something of value so that it can be acted upon ideally by an executive sponsor or an executive member um, to create change in the organization. I had two thoughts about that. First thought was, you know, when we as managers ask people to bring their whole selves to work, we get their whole <laughs> selves, not just the parts that we feel comfortable dealing with at the time. You know, and, and the other thing is, is that, you know, Audrey and I have been talking about, you know, the way we were raised, we were raised, we don't talk about sex, religion and politics. The third rails, but, but it yeah. seems to me that that's kind of unavoidable right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true because you know, for our employees of color, for our colleagues of color, professionals of color of different backgrounds, who you know, let's be honest, these structures were not designed for them to thrive in those organizations at the time, mm-hmm. and so it was comfortable for people to just simply ignore those real world issues. People can't really do that anymore. People can't really glom on a face of, you know, professionalism, so to speak, when they're really hurting, when they're really hurting by what's going on in the world, when um, it's just it's just become a point where I can't bring my whole self to work and be professional at the same time, because what's really what's going on right now is is, is truly devastating. So that is a huge difference. And uh, everyone's kind of being asked to step out of their comfort zone around that right now. Mm-hmm. But I think it's for good. I really do. I think it'll it'll help us all grow together. So how do you get someone who, who was raised the way Audrey and I w- were raised you know, with that thought in mind to get more comfortable or at least get comfortable with being uncomfortable in that situation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think even leaders of any generation can recognize that when you're comfortable, you're not growing, right? Mm-hmm. And so That's it's true. okay to be uncomfortable. We, and like you said, Lee, we have to learn how to be comfortable, not comfortable. But how do you become more comfortable? I think you just have to familiarize yourself with, with what is going to happen in the very near future. I mean, there is a rapid escalation of change happening with the way we work, with the way people are educating themselves, with the types of um, expertises that are even emerging. I mean, I don't wanna sit here and say that I'm the master, the expert in diversity, equity, inclusion. People have been doing this work for a very, very, very long time. Fortunately, it is more commonplace. And we see these titles sprouting up more and more and more agencies like mine sprouting up that doesn't by any means mean it's new. It just means that people are adapting. And so I, I see it fully possible. Um, having people like me on your podcast, you know, listening to new people like me talk about these subjects, kind of just putting yourself in these shoes and perspectives uh, really does go a long way. Well, and they're recognizing the value in having these conversations and getting uncomfortable together, because as you say, DEI helps them attract the best talent. Ultimately, that's proven. Mm-hmm. And it's a reorg of the lens of putting people ahead of profits in some ways. Do you want to talk about those two things and some of the metrics behind 
that. Yeah. 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 So I've been writing a lot about this lately, what I call culture of growth. And I know I'm on a sales podcast and I have come from a sales background, <laughs> so I can, I can hang on this, on the right. subject here. Yeah. Um, culture of growth to me really does mean putting the growth of your people first. Um, I was listening to a Brene Brown podcast earlier this week, and, and she her. had a, an author on her show recently that was discussing, you know, for too long, sales organizations have tolerated those genius a-holes, so to speak, those people that are total <laughs> jerks, but they produce, they can bring in yeah. those numbers, they can yeah. meet those quotas. I.e. I. the number one salesperson. <laughs> right. The top performers. Yes. <laughs> so for too long, companies have kind of... Um, have just tolerated that behavior and it, and it does really affect the culture. And so nowadays I do see companies saying, all right, culture, like you said, Audrey will foster a sense of retention, people wanting to be there, people wanting to show right. up, work their hardest, produce, hit those numbers, of course, but it doesn't backburn the way we treat each other either. Or, you know, that genius a-hole just cannot be tolerated anymore because it does hurt the company in the long run. And they're legal um, liability these days. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's another huge cost. Um, another thing that I, I'm, I'm excited about personally, because it totally bodes well for my work. Um, I've got a, a prospective client that is hearing from their prospective clients. They're going to lose business if they don't demonstrate how they're committing to diversity, equity, and inclusion in their mm -hmm. organization in a real in a real way. And my contact happens to be their marketing director, um, and she's like, "Yeah, I can I can write some flowery mission statement and put it on the website and talk the talk, like you said, Audrey." But people see through that real quickly, and so you hear authenticity a lot in this space. And it's like I I have to answer that question a lot. How can we be authentic? How can we be it? It's like, well, you just have to show that you really care because it is too easy to walk, to talk the talk, as they say. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of really encouraging behavior out there so far. Do, do you have any clients in California where they're now legislating the diversity on the boards of directors for companies and also um, production companies um, have to have a certain level of diversity um, and equity? That's all like being litigated and legislated right now in real time. Are, are yeah. you dealing with any of that? It's fascinating what's happening. It is. It is. Yes. It's intense, right? I don't have clients yeah. that are doing that right now. My Most of my clients are kind of um, still in the Portland, Oregon area for now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's no longer just a market demand. We're acknowledging now that it is a market demand, but it is also becoming a strict requirement in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. And I think boards are, um, I have conversations like that a lot with people that um, if you're not really walking the walk in your board setting, then you're not really going to go far. That makes sense. What's it? I, I have to ask this question. And I, I'm looking at the screen and I'm seeing three white people talking about diversity and inclusion. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm wondering, so you as an expert, it's like, what advice can you give to managers and leaders who are white, you know, mm -hmm. to, you know, pick up the mantle or whatever and be champions of this sort of thing and, 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 and be unabashed about it? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And it's definitely one I think about every day and how to best show up given my own identity, identity and background and the identity and backgrounds of many people currently in leadership where this work does need to really start at the top in an organizational sense. And um, it's not really the case. We're seeing, you know, 
many organizations still are dominantly white. Leadership teams are dominantly white boards, all these things. And so, you know, what Audrey's saying, these mechanisms are now in place to try to really change that. But <clears throat> how do we move it forward without crippling it or confusing it or, or slowing it down in any way? Just because um, it seems we don't want to seem as though we're speaking for other people as white people. Mm -hmm. What we really want to do is learn how to take the cues and learn how to apply support where we can and show up in the best way, learn when to speak, when not to speak, when to advocate, when to follow. That's something, that's a dance I dance every day as well. I was gonna um, say, how, what, how, how do you do that? I don't agree mm -hmm. with identity politics where I have lots of gay friends and you're saying to me, because you're a cis female, you're not allowed to have, you're not allowed to be a champion for those that protected class. Yes, I can. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I can. Yeah, we can I all be allies. You know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you shouldn't take your, yourself out of being involved in this simply because you're Caucasian is what I'm saying. Like you Correct. can be yeah. a champion with your peers and your colleagues and your friends and all of that. But like you said, though, for people who want the identity side of it, you know, okay, you're going to launch this program in the company. Now be quiet. <laughs> How do you... How do you do it in a tactful way? You, you kind of made it sound like it's a bit of a, a maze. It can feel that way to managers and leaders. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to know when you should maybe back off and listen yeah. or speak up, speak out, call in, call out, kind of what you want to, what, what, what's your style? Um, I would agree, though. I don't think it's appropriate to do nothing. I think doing nothing yeah. is the problem. I think we just have to figure out where to listen and where to speak out, as I've kind of been saying, you know, a couple of times. And um, I can give you a, a practical example of what I, I was really hoping do you would. with my yes. services. Sessions. How do you facilitate that? So I know that your audience, a lot of the folks in your listeners are people leaders, are sales leaders. Maybe they're um, leading startups. They're leading maybe growing organizations. Um, I created a, a membership for folks kind of like me, that's I'm, I'm similar in that camp, right? I'm a startup leader and I'm an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and I'm having to sell my own services and find community out there. So I've formed a community of people with privilege, people with a platform, entrepreneurs. I like to say visionary leaders too. So it's in no way limiting, but change agents, people that are ready to acknowledge that we need to change the way we show up at work cool. and create culture at work um, and are ready to learn together. So I think, Lee, when we connected, we talked a little bit about my facilitation skills and kind mm -hmm. of how that informs the way I the way I serve my, my clients. So in this setting, I call it the community call to action. And it's a membership group for, for these folks to come. We join virtually right now. And we discuss topics that are that are really, really relevant to the now. So for example, I have my group meeting tomorrow night. We're discussing abolition. We're discussing why abolition might freak us out, why we don't understand it, our questions, our doubts. Um, you know, a lot of us were showing up to the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, and we were chanting defund the police. Many of us do believe the police should be defunded, but we're trepidatious with it. We might not fully understand why that's needed. And so my intention was to pause and take a moment to understand, okay, abolitionists have been around obviously forever. They've been around since slavery was abolished. Number of things in our social timeline have been abolished. There are obviously people that were for abolition then. What's happening now? Like what are, pe what are people's hangups now? And so what we do is we get together, we understand kind of these, um, these social change issues. I facilitate conversation, I give assignments 
and then I'll bring oh. in other experts. So I'll bring in people with, um, with backgrounds who are, uh, that have that lived experience in the black community or the BIPOC community, you could say, um, black and brown professionals that are also, this is their discipline kind of like me, but they do bring that lived experience. And I bring them in as sort of like a partnership in that learning environment setting. And so, um, it's, it's, it's really cool. I'm really excited because for the series now, I'm going to be focusing on abolition and then how to bring abolitionist principles into your organization. Um, wow. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. And it's, it's definitely challenging. It's definitely uncomfortable. <laughs> so what does a rollout within, I'm your client, you've done the facilitated session. HR might've been in on that too, because mm -hmm. ultimately they're kind of the implementing this, but what does the rollout look out and how do you get buy-in from everyone? Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that question because I think what kind of differentiates me and my service is I have that communications and sales background. Mm -hmm. And so the communication and the rollout plan are completely intrinsic to the success of the whole thing. Um, I got my experience started probably right around officially 2016 with chairing committees and chairing diversity, equity, and inclusion spaces and organizations. Um, as far as I know, that's kind of when I first saw that happening and was able to get involved. I was working at an ed tech company here in Portland and I began chairing the committee and I did so for two years. And I didn't need our CEO or our VPs or all of our executive team to be in those meetings every time, but communication and keeping them in the loop of what was going on, getting approvals, all that stuff, getting that buy-in was a constant part of my job as chair. Sure. And so I've kind of taken it upon myself as part of my offerings to continue that sort of effort of looping in executives and kind of holding them accountable to be that servant leader too, right? Mm -hmm. To, you know, they don't have to be controlling of the, of the conversation. I'm in there facilitating all that and extracting needs of the employees. And we can also call them an affinity group or a coalition. That's kind of what I like to say in an organizational space. And then we form that communication plan along the way so that the goal is that everybody in the organization, whether or not they're in that culture group that's discussing those topics, whether you call it a DEI committee or whatever works for you, they mm -hmm. all know the progress. They know there's an ERG coming out. They know that um, what initiative is coming out, whether it's a educational program, a new lunch and learn series, what have you. Everyone has that awareness of it all because I found that even as a sales team, customers are going to want to start knowing, okay, what is, what is your company doing for that? Um, there was a time where we had, um, we had sort of a fireside chat event at that ed tech company I was working at. And, um, you know, our CEO does a wonderful job with these types of events. One of our, um, one of our prospective customers, our prospects spoke out to the entire room. What are you doing for equity? And we were an education company. And so equity is massive has always been an important priority there. Yeah, um, our CEO, he, he really couldn't answer the question. He's like, well, Katie shares our committee, you know? So it is important to be able to articulate the progress <laughs> other than just, we have a committee and, and there, there's the person that leads it, you know? Okay. So that's where the communication comes in. I'm curious, what sparked your interest in this topic as a young professional? Can you think back, there was, was there one particular event or was it just something that happened over time? Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you brought up Boulder, Audrey, because uh, I went to school at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and Boulder is a great town to get involved in things like this. Where I live in Portland now, it's kind of a like-minded culture in terms of yeah. that progressive vibe and, and um, people taking an interest in others and a lot of community-based stuff. And so when I was a freshman at CU Boulder, 
I don't know really where I was going. I decided to enroll in some communication classes and I, you know, signed up to be a communication major. And then um, I came across more sociology courses. I got really, really interested in that. And I started really geeking out over, um, you know, the women and gender, racial and ethnic studies um, sorts of courses. So I decided to take that on as a double major as well. So I would say in college, I got really, really interested in the social sciences um, and and feminism and, and topics like that, social justice right around then. And it wasn't really popular. I mean, I albeit I graduated college in 2010, uh, but it still really, really was not being talked about a lot. I kind of felt like, um, you know, unique in that way of taking an interest back then, even at a place like Boulder. Yeah. Well, Go it's box. interesting because <laughs> uh, when Audrey and I went to school together at Ohio University, I, I little known fact, have a double major and, and my second major is in women's studies. So, you know, really? classes in feminism and everything. Yeah, I never, I don't know if I ever told you that, but it's like, so this is back in the 1980s. So it's like, it's, oh, you know, it's, hey. it's, it's, you are it's, ahead it's, of your time, my friend. Well, that's the thing. I found it curious or whatever that, that in 2010 or whatever, it still wasn't a big thing because it was a thing back, you know, back then, yeah. but not a big thing, but it's like, it's just, you know, you thought that it would be a further along, you know? It's a thing. It wasn't a big thing. I actually have vivid memories of taking a photo in the big, on the yeah, on the stairs um, <laughs> at my graduation, and our group was probably less than fifteen people that were wow. uh, in, in my class that year. But that really warms my heart, Lee, that you that you doubled <laughs> majored in women's studies. Can I ask you the same question about um, how you took an interest in that subject? You know. Uh... I will say that growing up, I've been, you know, have always been influenced by uh, by powerful women and had a great admiration for, uh, you know, women who were astronauts or women who were scientists uh, and the business world and everything like that. Uh, they they helped me uh, as a young professional. And so, you know, I've always had uh, my, my level of enthusiasm there. And it's like, you know, even my company, it's like, you know, majority of the people here are women. So, it's true. Uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, something that I gravitate to. And I, I don't know that I can really put my finger on a particular event or anything like that, that, that caused that to happen. It was just something that was always there for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I do remember, yeah, the feeling I felt, I remember to this day of just like, gosh, I wish more people had this information. <laughs> yeah. 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 One thing, we got about five minutes left. I wanted to ask you, one of the other things that you work on is it's called employee activism. And just mm-hmm. that's almost like a charged phrase because it sounds scary, that, that it? phrase will make mm-hmm. some employees recoil yeah. and say, I don't want anything to do with that. Or do I have to do, do I have to go do that? Or I don't want to. And other people are like, yeah, let's go do it. Uh, how <laughs> do you, the activist, right? The activist. Says, what let's does go. that mean? <laughs> what is that in practice? And then how do you manage that? Mm-hmm. I appreciate that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I like to say I'm focused on the intersection between employee activism and culture. And uh, I was actually sitting in a, um, a women in business kind of membership uh, presentation earlier this week. And um, I didn't really follow this metaphor, but I think this is maybe a, uh, somebody who presented it has been in business you know, for about 17 years. And so this metaphor has worked for her. Um, but to, to, in order to have a scalable business, you need to either be a painkiller or a vitamin. And I sat there thinking like, I don't know which one is better, which one is right. <laughs> Is it the drug or is it the thing we need to, you know, to be healthy? I'd say vitamin. You say vitamin. I'd say steroid. (laughs) You say steroid. Okay. Okay. To scale, right? (laughs) 
apparently the correct answer is to be a painkiller. Why? Um, Why? This surprised me. Yeah, because it's the most immediate need, right? If you have a headache, a migraine, you need to pop a painkiller in order to get through your day. I don't know if I really agree with this metaphor, but the point is that you need to create something that's an immediate need for your market, right? Like that need to have versus that nice to have, which I think, you know, we, we can one's short-term though and one's long-term well exactly you need both of them it's just that people are willing to pay money for the painkiller because when they're in pain Mm -hmm. they want it to go away aviator (laughs) gin well yeah that's (laughs) i'm not sure which category that falls under (laughs) well it makes me feel better that it's not really resonating for you too as well no No, i'm not getting it (laughs) now the reason i bring it up is because to your to your question about employee activism how it might totally freak some people out how it might even turn some people off but it also might rev others up. When I have to make decisions about which companies I want to work with, um, as it's important for any entrepreneur and any consultant, that's kind of my differentiator there is I really want to work with companies that care and that this is their painkiller. What I have is killing the pain they experience by not having the support that I can provide. Um, I believe that my, my clients will see more success there if the kind of people that I work with get revved up and jazzed about employee activism. If there's people that just like put on their hood and don't, don't want to look up and look away, I'm not really interested in working with the people that don't care that much because it just won't go as far as I'd like it to go. That's a fair answer. So I'll go back to my, my first question about the people that are having the most difficult time uh, during the, the pandemic, you know? And so I'm thinking about the groups that have been, uh, you know, harmed the most by the virus. I'm thinking about uh, the people that have lost their jobs the most, you know, or, or, or fear for losing their job because of the virus. I think about the, the parents who are now working from home and having to teach their kid, you know, as they attend classes on Zoom and that sort of thing. And but they didn't really sign up to be a teacher. You know, and but it's you know, so they're having to juggle all of that, and so that the work-life balance thing becomes even more blurred. And so I'm thinking about those people, and and that leads me to the the, the wonder about are the companies themselves having a more challenging time executing their DEI strategies during this pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I would say short answer is yes, because um, historically in organizations, it hasn't been prioritized. I think, um, I wanna say back when I'm thinking into April of last year, right when all this stuff was really fresh, uh, with the pandemic specifically, those teams were getting cut first. Um, As a consultant in the space, I was having a heck of a time connecting with people around that time, as you can imagine. Um, It's, and it's depending on what company you're looking at, it's not a priority. It either is or it isn't. Um, I believe for it to be successful, it needs to be a priority, even under these difficult circumstances. In my opinion, it's even more important. One of my clients says, this was the year of HR. 2020 was the year of HR. We had to learn how to compassionately lay people off. Mm -hmm. We had to learn how to figure out home, you know, constant remote work. And like you're saying, homeschooling while working, all of that, that's the year of people, right? It's like, I, I don't think that HR, it should all fall on their plate to figure out people's, ex- the employee experience, the work-life balance. Um, I, I like the emergence of people operations teams. I find that my work kind of fits in that a little more squarely. Um, so I think your question is more so, how do we keep DEI, anti-racism work top of mind while we're kind of still in this survival mode. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a, an existence in a pandemic. Um, 
yeah, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot to really juggle all the time. I don't think, I don't think there's ever a time to forget about social mm-hmm. equity and belonging where we have to show up every day. I mean, I think that this is actually something I was writing about in my newsletter this week, 2020 gave us probably the most opportunities of ever to be into our full authenticity, have tough conversations and um, bring our whole selves to work, even when it's hard. So the way I see it is it's DEI is, is one aspect of it to making sure there's um, equity and opportunity for all to thrive, but it's culture. That's kind yeah. of a, a change I made in my brand recently is kind of zooming out a bit and just thinking about the holistic culture and, and what that means in these parameters of a pandemic. It's more important than ever. It, it, there's never a time not to have fairness and justice and never a time then for you to not be thinking about your employees and how they work and play well with each other. And, you know, and also then, you know, your employees as people and what they're going through, you know, and it's like, and we're all going through a lot. And, you know, on one hand, it's great to see the Zoom call, you know, where you get to see, you know, their kids or you get to see the dog come up or whatever, you know, while you're having a meeting like that. You feel like you get to know them a little bit better. I think that's that's a positive out of all this, but you know, it's like, this is not, this is not like an option on a new car or anything like this. This is just something that, that has to be. And so, mm-hmm. and, and especially right now, because there's a lot of people hurting and we have to be compassionate to, to, to those people. But also, as we were talking about in the pre-show, it's like, we got to count our blessings, you know, that mm-hmm. we're not out on the street in, in Portland and Denver and everything like that, that we have warm, you know, warm houses and we have jobs if we have them and we have means and more, most importantly, we have people who care about us. And I think that's all anybody wants. Yeah. 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 I mean, just the fact that we can do our work on the day to day here on a computer and connect remotely. I mean, that speaks volumes. And one of the things I was reflecting on a lot over the the last year is the concept of intersectional safety and Mm. just means that not everybody feels safe right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, if you'd like to implement a program like this or have Katie, you know, facilitate a workshop, all, all the various amazing things that you do, Katie, it's katiezinc.co and it's Z-I-N-K, not zinc like the supplement. That, okay? Which you need to be taking during the pandemic, by the way. <laughs> which you should take with your vitamin D. Um, and then for your, and your LinkedIn. <laughs> and your painkiller and your martini. Now, uh, Katie S is in Sam Zinc on LinkedIn. Katie, this has been great ideas Best of luck to you at the company. I hope you get some new clients out of this. And really, it's great to get everybody thinking about this in an active way. So we're so glad you were here today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.